Nice to have you here. Um, we are going to uh, discuss something that I think everyone is going to be super interested in this audience, and it's how do institutional LPs evaluate managers? So to get kicked off, let's do a quick round robin. Um, for each of you, why don't you tell everyone the institution that you work for, the kind of AUM that you have, uh, how much is allocated to venture, and what a first check looks like to a new manager that you'll commit to. Do you want to start, Randy, first? Yeah, sure. Happy to do that. Uh, Randy Ojuku, I work for the private market solutions team at Morgan Stanley. We manage about 16 or $17 billion uh, and do everything in private markets, venture capital, growth equity, buyouts, et cetera. Uh, and also, we'll do primaries, co-investments, secondaries. We've probably committed something like $1.2 billion to venture funds over the last 15-plus years. Um, and to a new emerging manager, maybe something like 10 to $20 million as a first show. Sure, I'm David York, founder and managing partner of Top Tier Capital Partners. Um, all we do is venture. We manage about eight and a half billion. Um, started originally in Silicon Valley, and today we have offices in Boston and, and London. Um, our investment activity spans the whole gamut from uh, seed to growth. Um, for an emerging manager, we're typically in the five to ten ten million dollar range. T typically, like to be around ten percent of of a fund. The funds are usually lower than. Uh, 150 million in size for a more traditional manager. Again, thinking about that five to ten percent range, we typically invest over 25 to 30 million, depending on fund size. But that's that's what we do. Great. I'm Caitlin Fitzmorris. I'm a managing director with Selby Lane Capital. We are a boutique investment firm that just invests in venture growth equity and buyout funds. Uh, we are a very new firm, started last year, uh, so we're still building our exposure, uh, but we're currently committing about $200 million a year across the private markets on behalf of our clients. Uh, and our initial check can range from a couple million dollars up to kind of $20 million plus, depending on the fund and the situation. And uh, hello, everyone. My name is Chris Presser-Giacomo. I'm a portfolio manager at the State of Wisconsin Investment Board. Uh, we manage the retirement assets of the Wisconsin Retirement System, which is a fully funded pension plan, so we have permanent capital. Uh, it's about $120 billion of AUM. Uh, our venture exposure is about 2%, so $2.4 billion uh, or billion of, uh, of uh, NAV. Um, most of that is in, in funds. About 95% of the AUM is in, in funds, 5% directs. Um, we pace, we're pretty disciplined in our pacing on an annual basis, so we're, we're pacing in anywhere between $500 million and, and $600 million annually into venture. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll, like our, 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 our typical check size into a fund is, is probably $25 to, to $30 million. But we have a, a wide range. Our smallest fund commitment is $1 million, and our largest commitment is $100 million. So we have a lot of flexibility uh, within the portfolio. David, I'm going to pick on you first. Sure. Okay. So evaluations of managers start at first meetings. First impressions are everything. <clears throat> Probably hard to change a first impression. Um, what does a great first meeting look like to you? Well, typically you're on time, so that's helpful. Uh, <laughs> sometimes I'm not, which I apologize for those who have had to wait for me. But, you know, usually it's been on Zoom for the last three years plus. Um, and usually somebody's sent the pitch book ahead of time and they just want to chat. And that's hard because we see lots of folks. We see three to 400 people, 300 managers a year, sometimes as many as five or six, just depending on what the market's doing. And so trying to remember your pitch book, let alone get to it, <laughs> it's really impossible. Um, and so we really want you to kind of take us through your journey and your story and have it tie off in a way that makes sense to us. 
and that's very helpful. I, I'm a I'm a sort of a study of people, so I really love to understand the background of the individuals on on uh, on the Zoom call or in person, and why they're there, and how they got to where they are, and why they're motivated to do what they want to do. Randy, any first meetings that like jump out at you as being great? Yeah, so I think for us, there are a couple, but I think for us, we, we generally take a view of the world in VC, right? And so we have a perspective on what's worked for us, what hasn't worked for us. And so in a first meeting, we want to kind of do a screening mechanism and make sure, hey, does this GP comport with how we think about the world, right? No different from a GP going out there and looking for an entrepreneur that makes sure they're in the right sector, right geography, et cetera. Um, and so after that, it's trying to figure out, okay, what's the special sauce? What's differentiating about this GP versus others, right? You know, we're taking 100, 200 meetings a year with VCs, right? So what's going to make these guys different and make these guys great, right? Um, you know, you ask if something jumps out. Uh, you know, I, I can actually think of a meeting on the negative side that jumped out, unfortunately. But uh, the, the, maybe the, what I'll preface with that is saying that a great meeting doesn't necessarily mean we'll invest, Right, um, you know, it's not unusual for us, as an example, to meet a great fund around one cycle and invest two cycles later. And some GPs get that. Um, not all GPs do. Uh, there was a GP we were meeting with, uh, and we said, "Hey, unfortunately, we're going pencils down." Uh, and they came back and said, "Well, it's not pencils down; it's pencils broken." We said, "Okay, well, we're never going to invest in you now." Um, and when the next LP calls us, which they did to ask about that fund, you can imagine how that conversation went, right? So um, it is uh, an interesting. Yeah, gotcha. So use pens, not pencils. Okay. Uh, Caitlin, I don't know if you're anything like me, but sometimes I'll do four or five meetings in a day, maybe fifteen over three days. I can't remember the great meeting that I had two days ago often that evening how do how do people stay on your radar if you're investing potentially two to three cycles later yeah i think as as randy just mentioned that's it's key and and these can be really long relationships that take a while to develop and as i'm sure you've all experienced lps have a lot of people clamoring for their time um and so i think it's important to try to to stay top of mind uh, and, and kind of get their attention while also, you know, demonstrating over, you know, one or two fun cycles that you're delivering on, you know, what it is that you originally pitched as your fund and, and what your value proposition is. Um, and so I think that can be as simple as if you're sending a quarterly update to your existing LPs, you know, pass it along to a couple of prospective investors that, you know, you hope to build a partnership with over time. If you're doing, an, you know, an interesting new deal or, or have some good fundraising updates on your portfolio, you know, pass that along so that not only do you kind of bring yourself back up to their top of mind, um, but also really show some good progress and, and demonstrate that you're delivering on, you know, what you had pitched as um, your, your strategy and your value proposition originally. Chris, anywhere, any good ways people stay top of your radar? Yeah, uh, what I would say, I'd, I'd preface the statement first by saying, you know, start um, Start communicating with prospective LPs well ahead of a fundraise, probably no surprise to, to all of you. Again, um, we see a lot of uh, managers uh, that come through on an annual basis. I mean, we, like at SWIB, um, uh, you know, we set our kind of our, our, our capital budget uh, the year before. We're building our pipeline. So right now we're building our pipeline of re-ups and new managers for 2024. So start that process early. Caitlin hit it right in the head. Um, it, you know, send out materials on a quarterly basis or a semi-annual basis to your prospective LPs. Um, a lot of times we'll get invited to AGM, their AGM, their annual annual meetings. 
um, there are some instances where the GP, maybe they're, um, uh, uh, they're a specialist in a particular area, whether it be AI or blockchain or Web3 or what have you, and they'll put on some webinars and they'll invite us to those. Um, when we're traveling, we're traveling all over the U.S. to meet with our managers. We'll stop in and, and say hello and meet the team and, and, and get updates. Um, and then, I, again, I would just say uh, have, have a, a persistent but not pushy cadence um, and, and touch base with your prospective uh, LPs you know, every, every six months, every quarter, every six months. Randy, it's, uh, as a VC, I know it's pretty competitive out there. We have, uh, uh, there's a lot of people trying to get a little capital. Uh, and we think a lot about edge. What do you think about when you're looking at the backgrounds of teams that give them an unfair advantage, that give them edge? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I wouldn't say that there's any particular background that uh, gives or, or personality gives a group an edge. We've invested in a number of different types of groups, right? But if I'm boiling VC down, right, it's, you know, can you source uh, well? Can you win those deals that you source? Uh, can you help those companies along the way? And then can you kind of make sure you're structuring your capital properly so that you're you know, getting to uh, a right exit, right? So um, if you're doing those four things, uh, and you should probably be great at all those things and hopefully spectacular at a couple of them, right? Uh, but I wouldn't say there's a particular personality that is good at that. But for us, I think we'll want to understand and, and check around to say, hey, well, what does the market think of this person, right? So we'll talk to other GPs and say and understand uh, want to understand if you, you play nicely in the sandbox with others, right? We'll talk to other LPs, right? Um, and make sure that you're a fiduciary, make sure that you're clear in your communication, et cetera. Um, maybe most importantly, we want to talk to entrepreneurs, right? And talk to entrepreneurs and understand um, what they think of you, what the, what the perception is of you, how often you really help, right? And so um, it, with that, there's not a particular background, I would say, right? We've backed former operators. We've backed lifetime investors. I think there's, there's a wide variety of, of backgrounds we've backed. Caitlin, any personality traits that you look for? Yeah, I think there's a few that are really important in this business, uh, and it goes back to a little bit of what Randy was just saying. But at the end of the day, this is a relationship business, you know, both between LPs and GPs, you know, hopefully forming a, a very long and multi decade long partnership. Um, but we also understand that it's about, for, you know, the GPs forming relationships with founders and getting access to, you know, com compelling deals and, and interesting opportunities. And so being able to form those relationships, being a good person within, you know, the ecosystem, as Randy said, you know, everyone talks to each other, um, you know, LPs and, and GPs uh, amongst each other. And so at the end of the day, I think that's really one of one of the most important things is, is being able to form, you know, strong personal and professional relationships with, you know, kind of all of the players in the ecosystem. I guess when you really think about evaluation, a lot comes down to performance, Chris. Um, so has the current market environment that we're seeing today impacted the way you're analyzing performance? Um, oh, absolutely. It's, it's going to change how we're thinking about um, our, our manager performance. Um, you know, obviously, we're spending more time digging into the, the, the actual funds themselves and looking at the underlying portfolio companies to really get a good sense of where um, our, our, our managers are holding the valuations and then getting some metrics of those companies on those businesses. And the nice thing that, that we have at our shop is um, there, are, there are a lot of companies um, where we have multiple managers that have invested in the same company at the same security. 
So we get to see kind of who's super conservative and who's super aggressive. And then we'll kind of, uh, you know, right size or upsize uh, depending upon where we think the value is. But what I'll say is that um, uh, given the fact that we have, you know, we can see where people are holding their, their values, um, it does shape how we um, view a manager when they come back to market. So my view is, you know, when you're, when you're thinking about valuations, be conservative. Because um, uh, at the end of the day, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll make our own determination. So a uh, long answer is um, we've got you know, still a lot of unrealized uh, profits in, in our portfolio. We're just spending more time on the underlying valuations of the businesses. And David, how do you think about unrealized, va uh, unrealized value today in portfolios? <laughs> Very similar to what Chris yeah. said. My, my, you know, our history goes back into the late 90s, and so we've seen the internet bubble, and we've seen the global financial crisis. And, and so we're going through a period of value reset currently, and it's not made its way really into our book at this point because a lot of the companies financed over the last two years. And so um, what was clear coming out of the late 90s was the performance during that period of time wasn't indicative of the future performance, and a lot of firms actually over time just never caught up. So we spent a lot of time really trying to sort that out and make sure that the valuations that are being presented to us from a track record point of view are actually going to stick or have some validity to them so that we're not buying uh, things of the past that aren't going to perform in the future. What about firm performance metrics? So there's a lot out there. I think of four, MOIC, TVPI, DPI, IRR. I guess most managers in the room are probably um, incentivized on cash on cash or compensated on cash on cash. Chris, what's the most important metric for you and why? Cash is the most <laughs> important thing at the end of the day. I think one of, uh, one of the panelists earlier this morning um, uh, made a comment that you, know, you, can't, you can't eat IRR, you can't eat TVPI. So DPI obviously is very important uh, for us and our beneficiaries. Um, the problem with DPI is, uh, you know, it takes a while. Um, you know, we're, our portfolio is tilted primarily towards early stage. So DPI uh, of a seed fund, we know it's going to take some time. So looking at those various metrics, it really depends on the, the, the fund strategy and, and, and what, they're, what they're doing. So, um, you know, for, for us, you know, we probably don't start really thinking about DPI until maybe year four-ish um, is, is, is kind of our, our, our view there. Um, and then TVPI and IRR, we do follow. We pay attention to it. Um, IRR is probably something that I follow a little bit more closely. Um, but I'll, what I'll say is the, um, you know, uh, the past couple of years, you know, re returns have been out of this world. We were kind of laughing backstage, but I've, I've told a few folks in our, in our investment committee, like, you know, don't expect these returns to continue. There's going to be a reversion to the mean. We're starting to see that now. So when you're actually doing some benchmarking using IRRs, it's been tough to do. But I think over the longer term, things will get down to a more, a norm, uh, more normal environment. Talking about benchmarking, how do you think about benchmarking, Randy? Like, how important is it in your analysis? And what are the, what are the pros and cons of it? Yeah, so it's definitely important, right? It's, it's something we do, but it's not the end-all, be-all, right? I think we've done some analysis internally on uh, looking at our, our data, and it would, it would show you that, uh, you know, it, it really takes about six years for a fund to settle out in the, in the quartile, right? And that over that six years, it's not unusual for a fund to be in three different quartiles, Right, so maybe after a few quarters, it's in the third quartile, and then it jumps up to the first, and then actually it settles out in the second. 
right? Um, and not to geek out too much, right? But then you should also really be understanding the age of those companies and the deployment pace. And that's, you know, so vintage year is important, but also, you know, understanding the underlying age of the portfolio, right? Um, so that, you know, it's, it's important, but it, it isn't the end all be all. The other thing is that, uh, you know, if you talk about persistence, I think the latest pitch book data I saw is that persistence for VC funds kind of, you know, if you're in a first quartile, are you going to be in the first quartile again for your next fund? It's around 50%. I think it was 55%, which is just a little bit better than the coin flip, right? And so, you know, it, it's important. We do it, but, you know, there's a lot more analysis that we do. One of the things that's, that's kind of interesting, David, I'll ask you this, is um, when you have new investors in a fund that have been around for a long time, you're looking at uh, attribution and track record. When you're looking at emerging managers, it must be much more difficult to assess their investment capabilities. How do you do that? Carefully. (laughs) Uh, So we usually invest, most of the emerging managers we've invested in typically have some historical investment activity that we can try and triangulate against. Um, but we do a lot, like Randy suggested, which is spend a lot of time in the GP community trying to understand the value add that, that's being preached to us. Um, and then uh, we do, because we own so many companies indirectly, have a great, a great sort of laundry list of places to go reference. Um, today we own about 15,000 companies indirectly across all our books, so it gives us the ability to triangulate pretty well. But that's that's how we do it. And Nine times out of ten, a manager that we sponsor for the first time has typically been referred to us or been in business for a while. Gotcha. Caitlin, do you have any other tips and tricks? How are you? Yeah, I would definitely agree with, with what David said. I think, you know, manager selection is always a little bit more art than science and, and even more true when there's a less mature track record. But I think it really just requires the LP to invest a lot of time and effort with, you know, the fund that they're speaking with or the individual the GP they're speaking with to really understand um, the companies they backed, why they backed them, what they were looking for, and, and making really a judgment call, um, you know, as to the attractiveness of those investment opportunities and, and not just falling back on, you know, kind of where they might have been marked in their last, uh, their last fundraising round. So I think it requires a little bit more in-depth work and, and probably more time spent in the diligence. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, is always going to be a little bit of a judgment call, you know, on the individual LPs front. So I want to switch a little bit to how you think about, you've talked about first meetings, individuals, performance, but how do you think about teams and partnerships? Because uh, partnerships are a slightly strange thing. It's a group of people. Um, How do you balance, what do you think the right balance is between a team and a set of individuals uh, trying to achieve something? What's the right balance and how do you assess tensions? Yeah, Randy, sorry. Yeah, sorry, I was looking at you. um, You know, so I, yeah, this is kind of the classic, like, agency versus more collaborative model, right? And and what do, uh, what do folks prefer? I, I, you know, I would be curious to say what other folks think, but I think we strongly prefer collaborative models. Um, I think for us, trying to make sure you have someone that can challenge your thinking, that can you know really make sure you're all on the you know on the right page, um, that's very important for us. Uh, you know, I think in the agency models that we have seen and backed, 
um, oftentimes it can be like partners work for different firms, right? Uh, we were talking to a very large firm uh, about a particular subject. If I said the name, you all would know it. Um, and we talked to three different partners from that firm, and they had three, it was like they worked for three different firms. They had very different perspectives on the same question, and it was kind of like, wait, how, how can you all work for this firm and all have sl such different perspectives on, uh, on this particular topic, right? And so that, that for us, I think, is, is, is largely a turnoff. But, but I should say that it's, it's a spectrum, right? It's not like you're an agency model or you're a collaborative model. It really is a spectrum between the two. You can kind of look more like the other. Yeah, I'm going to jump in, Stuart, if that's yeah. okay. Because what's happening in ventures, you really are starting to see an evolution in, in firm structure. Um, you know, if you go back into the, the beginning of time in the 70s and 80s, it was definitely uh, a bunch of guys sitting around the table, almost like a law firm. Uh, they all had their individual practices, and they kind of shared the energy of that, and then somebody raised their hand to start a company, uh, like Genentech or something of that nature. Um, Today we see uh, quite a few sole solo GPs, um, and those are tricky uh, for institutions from a fiduciary point of view um, because there's a couple risks there. There's the hit by the bus risk, which we all kind of know, but there's also the headline risk, which um, is something that's not obvious. Um, we've tended, if we've done solo GPs, they've tended to be kind of, they've been embraced by a platform, if you will, and are building a platform to ultimately have more investors come, come out of that and or into that to build more collaborative and what I'd say um, sort of consensus building as far as investment decisions are made. But it's been very hard for us to buy a solo GP just because they want to raise money and, and put money to work. Caitlin, Chris, how do you think about solo GPs? Yeah, so we, um, uh, at least since, since I've been at uh, SWIB, have only invested in a, a few solo GPs. It's... Um, you know, we're not against it. Um, it is a little bit tougher for a larger institution like SWIB. Um, you know, as David said, the, the 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 individual, the one person that's managing the fund, is making all of all of the decisions. So, uh, the the whole uh, hit by bus is, is a big issue. If things don't work out, who's going to pick up the portfolio and work with the companies? The other thing too is. Um, you know, GP, uh, typically a GP isn't just going to be looking to raise one fund. They're going to raise fund two, three, four, and five. And so their ability to hire both on the investment side as well as maybe, you know, back office, et cetera, is very important. And that's a very different skill set. So, you know, uh, there's another risk there that the individual that you uh, invest in doesn't have kind of the background or, or qualities to be able to hire a, a, a solid team. So, um, again, we're, we're, we're not against it. We just haven't done a lot of it um, in our shop. Well, a question for you, Caitlin. Um, what warning signs have you seen, going back to the partnership point, what warning signs have you seen for a firm that's starting to lose its way? It's a great question. Um, I think some of the ones that, you know, in hindsight, if you look back at, at kind of where things, you know, got lost, I think part of it is around understanding really what is motivating and driving the individuals at the firm and, you know, what is making them get out of bed every day, what are their ultimate goals and, you know, kind of how they're going to define success for themselves personally and for the firm. Um, I think when those motivating factors are not aligned within a partnership, um, that can result in a lot of issues over time um, and, and really kind of 
trying to understand going into a partnership, you know, what are those, those motivations um, are really important. Um, these are really long partnerships, you know, multi-decade in some, some days, uh, in some, some cases. Uh, and so understanding kind of what is, is kind of intrinsically driving and, and motivating those individuals and making sure that if it is a partnership, you know, they are aligned in terms of, of what they're doing. Um, we love to ask managers, especially as they're starting out, like how they'll define success for themselves in the future. And it can be a really eye-opening question uh, in terms of how people answer that. And David, once you have committed to a manager, mm-hmm. um, maybe for the first time, how have the best firms managed their relationship with you to make you feel like a valued partner and not just capital? <laughs> Got it. We tend to over-index over on um, helping the firm try to grow and organize itself. Uh, a lot of the first-time funds we've done, we tend to try to get on a quarterly cadence where we either sit down with them and talk through life or, or get on a call and those sorts of things. Uh, we tend to spend two to three times a year with managers going through their book and, and also what they're doing as it relates to their team. Um, We've uh, been instrumental in interviewing a lot of general partners and our, and our managers to help them, frankly, promote themselves, but also try to sort out if it's a good fit from a different point of view. So we really try to be an active partner um, in a way that um, uh, sort of differentiates us. We tend to sit on the advisory board of most of the managers we invest with. So lots of, lots of touch, yeah. And Chris, as a pension, slightly different, um, how, how do the best managers make you feel valued? Um, you know, so look, LPs and GPs, we're all aligned. Um, you know, we're, we're all, we all want to make money. Um, uh, the, the dollars that you all invest and the returns that you make come back and, and are, um, you know, help our beneficiaries um, uh, retire in dignity, have a nice life. Where what I really like, like my best manager relationships um, actually are, are more curious about like, what we do and what we're all about and learning about, you know, the, the 660,000 beneficiaries across Wisconsin that we're, we're trying to generate uh, retirement returns for. So, um, you know, that relationship, you know, it, again, venture is a relationship business. Um, and, and so having that closer relationship where I know kind of what they're doing, but they also understand what, what we're doing and what we're all about. You know, if I could just jump in on that as well, I, I think there's also value that as LPs we can provide beyond capital, which I know many GPs may laugh at. Um, but in all seriousness, I do think that, you know, we see the, the market, right? We see your peers and how they're doing valuation and how they're running their back office and, um, you know, how they're thinking about reporting. Uh, and so I think often the best GPs are asking those questions, right? Mm-hmm. Asking us and trying to figure out and improve upon themselves, well, how should I be doing my reporting and what should my check writing policy look like? And, hey, how do you do uh, valuation? How have you seen others do it, right? I think that's also super important. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think we're running close on time. So I'm going to ask one last question, which is, what advice do you have for anyone in the audience right now that wants to raise in the next one to two years, and maybe they're not like a name brand, top tier, quartile uh, uh, GP? What's the advice that you would give them? I'll start with you, Randy. Yeah, sure. I think it's just being thoughtful about what you're trying to do, right? I think. I'm surprised at the number of GPs uh, that I meet and ask about their fund and fund size and okay, well, you know, why why are you trying to raise 500 million and like 
they don't have a good answer, right? Like, it's like, oh, well, because that's what my friend raised, right? Well, that's, that's not, that doesn't make any sense, right? Like, what are you trying to do? What's the, what's the, you know, what are the ownership targets that you're looking for? How do you anticipate loss rates? And then how does that actually, you know, translate to your fund size, right? And the terms that you're going to have, et cetera, right? So just being very thoughtful about that. Um, again, I'm, I'm shocked at the number of GPs that haven't really put the time into thinking about, um, you know, fund size and how they think about their firm. David? My, uh, my comment within, in particular in this market is to be patient. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's uh, as Chris will tell you, um, lots of capital is allocated over the last 10 years and uh, people are overweighted and so they, they don't have necessarily the ability to commit, but they might want to develop a relationship and so take the time to do that. One other comment I'll have for Randy's comments is that um, do understand about portfolio construction and how many companies do you want to put in your portfolio? How, what do you want your reserves to look like? How you plan to manage that part of your balance sheet? Because that at least tells us that you understand the, the, the spreadsheet model that's going to generate the 3x in your portfolio and, and, your, and your carried interest in a way that uh, helps us understand you, you, what you're, that you're actually committed to doing this. A lot of people show up and they don't really understand reserve management and portfolio construction. Kaylin? I would tell you to start building those relationships now. Um, I think especially in this market, there's a lot of competition for capital. And you know, as Chris mentioned, they've already figured out their whole budget for this year. So if you're looking to raise this year or next year, you, know, you want to be getting on the LP radar soon, if not immediately. Um, and also just making sure you can tell your story well uh, in a way that really highlights, you know, how you're differentiated in the market um, so that your, you know, your pitch and, and your value proposition to LPs is, is memorable uh, amongst all the other funds that are out there in the market right now. And finally. Yeah. So um, as Caitlin said, start early. Um, stay in close communication with your current LPs and prospective LPs, you know, deliver a clear story, stay on strategy, um, you know, don't chase any shiny objects. Um, and, and then I, I would say that um, it, it's a, if you don't have a track record uh, or as good a track record as you think you will have, being able to tell a story about, you know, how your companies are actually progressing within the, the, the fund um, so maybe uh, put together some information on when you made an investment in a company, the ARR was X, and, and now it's Y, and the, the business executed as you, as you had planned when you first made the investment. So you can tell a story that the portfolio is looking good, you just haven't generated the returns yet. So if you can develop a clear, concise story around that, that's, that's, that's helpful for, for me. Great. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate your time, and hope everyone enjoyed it. <laughs>